0: Of, uh, announcement. We'll have our 10th anniversary celebration this coming Sunday, immediately following the morning church service. The church is providing uh, lunch, and then there'll be a short prayer time afterwards where we usually select several of the deacons and men in the church to pray and to uh, bring these requests before the Lord. Now, one prayer request that we had on the list tonight that I want to uh, also make a comment about sent out an email yesterday in relation to this that um, there's a family, the Robinson family, that are from Lubbock. And they go to Steve Sperlin's church. Steve is a pastor up there. He was here at the conference. It's now known as Cornerstone Bible Church, formerly known as Lubbock Bible Church, where Charlie Clough was a pastor. And it's a uh, solid doctrinal church. Steve brought his whole family up to Arete last summer, and has uh, since then been very involved with uh, um, a lot of the other, a lot of the pastors in, in doctrinal churches. Anyway, this family, there's, they're a young family. They have six kids, and the wife Lori has some form of cancer and have to do a bone marrow transplant. Her, she, they were all here at church Sunday before last. And the uh, you may have noticed her, she was sitting on the back row, had her surgical mask on and gloves on and everything. And so um, we're, we've got some, uh, there'll be some sign up sheets out in the fellowship hall. Uh, there are three or four uh, of the uh, churches around here Grace Bible Church, Pine Valley, and Baraka, and West Houston are all putting together some people who are providing meals. For them, each church is assigned a different week, so we have three weeks. I think the first week for us isn't until April 27th. So <clears throat> anyway, you can talk to Laura Bag or uh, Ann Wright and Pam Richards when she gets back on vacation. She's They're, they're up in uh, Washington State right now for a couple of weeks, so you can check with them. Also, a reminder of the men's camp out on April the 18th and 19th coming up, and I think that pretty much covers the announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are spiritually prepared for the study of God's Word this evening, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we can come together this evening to study your Word and study about your plan and purposes for human history. Father, we pray that as we study, we will have our eyes open to your plan, your purpose, the flow of history, and the unique role that we play as believers in the church age. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to focus, concentrate this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I pointed out last time I want to do some things a little bit differently. On Tuesday night, as we go through this uh, series on God's plan for the ages, one of the things is this is really a basic series. Some people may not be familiar with dispensations, but I'm trying to keep this fairly basic because it's fundamental to understanding the Bible, fundamental to understanding God's plan and purpose. So it's a good thing to encourage people who may not come on Tuesday night to come, to encourage people who may not come to West Houston Bible Church to come, And I also want this to be an atmosphere where we'll have some question and answer. And I'm going to be asking some of the questions, so you have to be ready to provide some of the answers. And as going along with that, Bryce has worked up a thing on the um, on the website. So that those who are out there live streaming, if they have a question on something that they want to answer on the left sidebar of the screen where you go on the live streaming tab, there's a place to click and it will open up a little dialog box where you can put in your uh, name and email address and question and then fire that off. And when we stop, when I stop a couple of times through the class, To deal with questions, then if you've sent in a question, we will get that. Um, We'll be able to let you participate as well. Okay, now we're looking this time at God's plan for the ages. Tonight, looking at dispensations. I've called this dispensations, truth, and fiction. Because we want to understand what dispensationalism is really all about. But as we get towards the end, we're going to see that there's a lot of fiction that is put out by people who are opponents of the dispensational theology, people who don't agree with dispensational theology, and it has always amazed me the kinds of uh, just misrepresentations, deceptions, ad hominem arguments that are found among those who do not agree with the dispensational theology. And so we need to understand what some of these claims are and find out how we can answer them if somebody were to ask us a question. Now, <clears throat> just by way of review from last time, what are the three essential elements of dispensationalism? What are the three indispensable elements of dispensationalism? should be pretty simple. By the time we get through with this, this will, it's like when we went through Genesis and we studied Abraham and everybody finally learned that there are three parts to the Abrahamic covenant land, seed and blessing and people could say that in their sleep. So what are the three indispensable elements of dispensationalism? First of all, it's what? It's what? Consistent literal Yeah, consistent literal interpretation of the scripture. Emphasis on consistent because other views will say they hold to literal interpretation of the scripture but it's not consistent. Now that whole field of interpretation and hermeneutics gets quite complicated and we'll go into that at a surface level later on and and as we go through, uh, through this series. Second thing is what? As a result of a consistent literal interpretation, what's the second thing? A distinction between Israel and the church and that God has a plan for Israel and God has a plan for the church. And then the third is what? Yeah, right. The unifying theme of the Bible is the, glorified, the, the glory of God. The unifying theme of God's plan for history is his glory. Second question I want to ask you, what's a one word? Think about this. What's a one word definition or a one word synonym that you could use for dispensation since the word dispensation is somewhat of an antiquated term by that I mean it's not found in any of the modern translations you'll find it in the King James New King James what's a one word that captures the definition of the Greek word oikonomos which is was translated dispensation How, what would be one word that would capture that administration, administration or management uh, something along those lines. And <clears throat> can you name one passage that we looked at last time where Jesus where it used various forms? Of, this is the only there are only two places in the Gospels where Jesus uses that word group, and one of those was in a passage we looked at last time, and that was in what? Luke sixteen. Luke 16. Luke 16. Very good. Y'all are paying attention. Got your notes in front of you. Okay. For a brief working definition, dispensationalism is a theological system. That means it's organized, it's logical. It does not mean that it is developed apart from Scripture. It is induced from Scripture using inductive reasoning. As you look at the data of Scripture, it is logically derived from Scripture and organized. It's not developed apart from Scripture and then imposed on the Bible. It's a theological system which understands that God sovereignly governs the history of the human race through a sequence of divinely directed administrations marked by distinctive periods of time as he works out his plan to destroy sin and evil. So that brings locates us back ultimately it relates to the angelic conflict. So we've looked at, reviewed already, the three essentials of dispensationalism. And then in defining a dispensation last time I said, in defining the term dispensation, it has the idea of an act, first of all, of the action of administering or ordering or arranging something, uh, dealing out or distributing something. And secondly, it's the act of administering or dispensing with some requirement. So there's an element in the in the concept of stewardship or administration that includes a responsibility, uh, an accountability as part of the idea of a dispensation. So <clears throat> a brief definition, I think I got this from Ryrie, it's a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. Okay, we looked at... Uh, words last time. As a matter of fact, when I pulled this up today, let me make sure I didn't uh, get past what we did last time. So I want to take us down to here. From the uses of the word, the word group in the New Testament, we can come up with various concepts or various ideas that are part of the part of the whole idea of of a dispensation. First of all, when we talk about a stewardship, a responsibility that is delegated, the one that does the delegating in terms of human history is God. He's the one uh, who delegates the responsibility, and he is the one to whom men are responsible in the discharge of their stewardship obligations, now what we're going to see, because I'll, I'm going to tie this in as we go through this series on dispensation, something we call we call the divine institutions. And so we'll, we'll plug that in as we go through the ages because that is not essential to dispensationalism, but it correlates with each dispensation because these relate to the ways in which God has set up uh, human history, so there are obligations toward God, and the human race is responsible to discharge their responsibilities towards God. And God, <clears throat> and three times Paul mentions this uh, in relationship to God in First Corinthians four one and two, Titus one seven, and Colossians one twenty five. Now, a key passage here is the passage in First Corinthians chapter four let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards, there's the word oikonomos, and stewards or administrators or managers of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. For a bishop, uh, then it's used again in Titus 1.7, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward, so that's tying the role of the over the uh the bishop, the episcopos which is the episcopas, the presbyteros, the elder, both function their functions described as shepherding the flock that God has given them. The word for shepherding is the verb for pastor. But the noun is poimen, uh and the the, the verb is poimino. And so the bishop-pastor. So these are just synonyms focusing on different aspects of the role of a pastor. The pastor is a steward of God. So every pastor is given a responsibility to oversee the flock that God has given to them. Colossians 1.25, Paul refers to himself uh, and refers to the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship, the oikonomia, from God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Now that that first, those first two verses are really important. What? Did, uh, look at those. Read it over just a second while you're sitting there. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards. Who's the "us" in the context? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Hmm. No? Who's writing? Paul. Paul. So the us refers to the apostles. He's defending his apostleship in that context. So he says, we are servants of Christ. He would include not only the apostles, but those who are working with the apostles. And by extension, this applies to anyone who is a pastor or in pastoral ministry, missionary, something of that nature. We're stewards, that is, we've been given a responsibility related to something he calls the mysteries of God. Now, what we're going to see here is this term, mysteries of God, is a term that relates to revelation. We, are, In the Old Testament, Israel was given the responsibility to be the custodian of the Old Testament revelation. God revealed himself through uh, Moses, through Uh, Joshua through Samuel, through Isaiah, through Daniel, Ezekiel, David, all the Old Testament writers. And Israel as an entity was responsible to collect, to preserve, and to disseminate the scriptures. Now in the New Testament, the apostles and the prophets were the foundation of the church. They are given a responsibility to be custodians of the New Testament scripture. And this contained new revelation that had not been part of Old Testament revelation. Nothing in the Old Testament is said about the church. There's no hint in the Old Testament that there was going to be a 2,000-year parenthesis after the cross that would include a new people of God composed of Jew and Gentile where the barrier between Jew and Gentile was also broken down. So Paul says... We're servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So, verse 2 is explaining what the responsibility of the steward is. At the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus is going to look at apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists, and there's only one issue it's not how big was your church, it's not how much money you raised, it's not how many people you converted. It, the issue is, were you faithful to the gift that God gave you and to the responsibility that God gave you? That is, that, that's the accountability for pastors. And I <clears throat> i was in a church one time where the board was composed of four or five men. I think four of the five men were entrepreneurs. And if you know entrepreneurs, they march to a different drummer. And these entrepreneurs were, in fact, one of them was a business consultant to get businesses off the ground. And I fought with them in a friendly way. For the five and a half years I was a pastor there because they kept wanting me to set down measurable goals, and obje- just like you would for a business, for the- for each year. But in the pastoral ministry... You can't set down measurable goals like that. You can't say, well, this year we have 50 people in the church. Next year we want to have 25 people. You, it's, you, the the result of the ministry is under the control of God the Holy Spirit, not the pastor. The pastor's objectives are just to clearly teach the Word of God as best he can. And this was a hard thing for these guys to, to get a good grip on that you can't come up with definable goals. The church is not a business in that sense. And what is required of a pastor is that he be found faithful to his gift, faithful in his study of the word, and faithful in his communication of the word. That's what Paul is saying here. The responsibility for pastors as as stewards, there's a responsibility. That's the idea that we're looking at here in point one, is God gives men a responsibility. Now, under the second thing that we see from these passages is the, the point I've just been emphasizing, that faithfulness is required of those to whom a dispensational responsibility is committed. So if each administration, each dispensation, has, the, has a, a clearly identifiable responsibility, and we'll see that comes from Revelation If each dispensation has an identifiable responsibility, there's also someone who's clearly identified as the steward. It's a corporate responsibility in many cases. In the age of what we refer to as the age of innocence, where there's just Adam and Eve, the steward, the uh, primary responsible party, was Adam. And so that usually, though, it's a group, Israel in the age of Israel, the church in the church age. So we see an illustration of this kind of responsibility as seen in Erastus, who was the city treasurer, uh, indicated in Romans sixteen twenty-three, And he had a specific responsibility where he's called the uh, treasurer in Rome. Uh, and Paul mentions this there in Romans 16, 23, which is on the screen. Okay, the third point, a stewardship may end at an appointed time. It's not something that is permanent and irrevocable. It's uh, it's for a pointed time. Uh, uh, somebody who's appointed to a position is has a position under a certain administration, but when that administration ends, then it changes. So a stewardship may end at an appointed time. And in this reference, Galatians 4.2 is talking about the law, the stewardship under the law, that those under the law were under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. So that word until indicates the end point, that there was a responsibility identified for a period of time, but then it was to come to an end. Uh, and then a new purpose would be introduced the second sentence there in this reference the end of the stewardship came because of a different purpose being introduced which shifts to the fulfillment of the plan of salvation at the cross and then the introduction of the church age fourth point is that dispensations are connected with the mysteries of god that phrase i talked about just a minute ago that is new revelation a mystery is not a conundrum you're seeking the solution to it's not a puzzle you're trying to solve, a mystery is not a whodunit where you're trying to identify the murderer. A mystery, in biblical terminology, is previously unrevealed truth. So dispensations are connected with this phrase, the mysteries of God, in several places. This shows that a dispensation has something significant, has, has a significant relationship. Uh, that 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 a dispensation has a significant relationship with revelation from god that's going to be inherent. How do you know when a dispensation shifts because god speaks there's new information given that that the role of the administration the 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 characteristics of the administration shift ephesians three two Paul says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation, there it's the oikonomia, the administration of the grace of God. So which dispensation is Paul talking about here in Ephesians 3, 2? Church age. What we'll see is that in if you put, look at a couple of these different verses in Ephesians th- Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3, Paul talks about a previous dispensation, which would be the law. The present dispensation of grace, which is the church age, and a future dispensation. So that's your strongest scripture for a minimum of three dispensations. Fifth point is that the term dispensation, which emphasizes the administration aspect, and age, which emphasizes a time aspect, are connected ideas, but the words are not interchangeable. For example, you ha- you can have an age such as the age of the Gentiles, Age of Israel, or Church Age, or the Messianic Age in the future, but that's not always identical with a dispensation. Dispensation has different features, so that you have the original age of the Gentiles, which is really composed of three dispensations because there are three major breaks that occur. And if you just think about it, uh, do you think God is administering human history the same before the fall of Adam as he does after the fall of Adam? Is that the same? No. So obviously there's a major change there, and it's accompanied by some revelation that we find in Genesis chapter 3. Does God govern or oversee the administration of the human race the same between Adam and the flood as he does after the flood? No. And we know that because after the flood, God gives a whole new list of obligations and responsibilities to Noah. So clearly right there we have three different uh, administrative periods, but they're all covered by the age of the Gentiles because the only basic group on the earth are the Gentiles, and God is working through all mankind specifically, and he hasn't singled out Abraham yet or the Jews. So the terms are not uh, not the same. Paul says that re- the revelation of the present dispensation was hidden for ages, Plural age of the gentile age of the jews meaning simply a long period of time not the same as a dispensation it says something similar in colossians 1:26. so dispensations operate within that time period but in the church age it's the dispensation of grace in the messianic age it's we call that the dispensation of christ because christ is the messiah we might refer to the messianic age also as the millennium But in those cases, the age and the dispensation are of the same length. They're identical. But they don't have to be identical. So a dispensation operates within an age. God clearly separated out certain chronological divisions in human history as seen in Ephesians 1.10 and Ephesians 3.8 and 9. Paul mentions ages then in three sense, uh, senses. He talks about ages past, that is before the church, in Ephesians three five and nine. He talks about the present age, in Titus two twelve, which is the dispensation of the grace of God, in Ephesians three two. And he talks about ages future, that is that come after the church age, in Ephesians one twenty one and Ephesians two seven. And Ephesians 1.10, he talks about this as the dispensation of the fullness of time. So as we looked at this earlier, we saw in in Ephesians 3.2, he has the dispensation of grace. And then in uh, Ephesians 1.10, the dispensation of the fullness of time. So that's at minimum two indicated there. And here are the scriptures. See, we have in Ephesians 1.10, the dispensation of the fullness of time. In Ephesians 3 8, uh, it talks about grace. And in Ephesians 3 9, he calls this the. um, It it ties the. This grace that he's given is tied to the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden. So there we see that there's previous ages. So we're deriving this concept breaking down the dispensations from the Scriptures themselves. It's inductive. It's not something imposed upon the Scripture. Seventh point here is that it's based, based on the use of the word in Scripture. A dispensation uh, <clears throat> may be defined as a stewardship, an administration, a manage, or a management of others' property. It sees God as the ultimate owner of the earth, and that the human race is given responsibilities in relation to administering uh, that that uh, administering the responsibility given to him. So we see the emphasis in dispensation is on that administration responsibility. Now, I keep coming back to that, and you'll see when we tie this together because this whole matter of definition is so important in uh, s- establishing what. We're talking about with dispensations, as I said before. Because too often, when people think of dispensations, they think of a timeline. Not that that timeline's wrong. It's just that isn't emphasizing what the word dispensation isn't a time word. Uh, Point number eight, with just stating that. I lost my slide. Here we go. Dispensation is primarily a stewardship or, or a management relationship and not a period of time, though of course, it operates within a period of time. May seem like it's nitpicky, but the word age is clearly a time word but dispensation is, uh, focuses on administration and responsibility. So under point nine, times, ages, and dispensations are not synonymous in their meaning, even though they may at times exactly coincide in its, the way it works out in history. A dispensation is basically the arrangement involved However, there's no reason for alarm if the definition doesn't ascribe time to a dispensation. Just make that very clear. So let's look at some theological definitions from some of the well-known dispensationalists. Here we have C.I. Schofield. C.I. Schofield said that it defined in his well-known notes from the Schofield Reference Bible. Most of you may be familiar with that, although people in a younger generation may not be aware of the Schofield Reference Bible. C.I. Schofield was a decorated Confederate uh, uh, soldier from the Civil War. After the Civil War, he was a lawyer. He ended up in St. Louis, Missouri, where he was mentored by James Hall Brooks, who was a Presbyterian pastor, who was one of the fathers of dispensationalism in the United States? Schofield was a, a pastor of several churches, including a congregational church in Dallas that now bears his name, Schofield Memorial Church. He mentored uh, He mentored Berry Chafer, who later founded Dallas Theological Seminary. Schofield and a number of other men, like uh, Dr. Chafer and others spoke at prophecy conferences and Bible conferences that were uh, held around the country. Now, think about it in those days. People get upset because I go teach at a Bible conference. I'm gone three days. I miss two Bible classes. Think about it, 1890. You're a pastor in Dallas. You're going to speak at the Niagara Bible Conference. That's three or four days on the train up there, three or four days on the train back. And if people are going to travel that far to go to a conference, they're going to be speaking all day long, every day for a whole week. So you're you're not just gone for two or three days; you're gone for weeks at a time, and that was common back in the 19th century, to uh, for pastors to go speak at conferences and to attend conferences of that nature. So in the early 1900s, Schofield was encouraged to uh, write his notes, annotations on the Bible. This was published initially i believe it was i may be wrong on this date but i think the first edition came out around 1915 the second edition which is the one most people are familiar with came out in 1917 he defined a dispensation as a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of god what's wrong with that definition time, time. very good First thing he says is that dispensation has a period of time. This is why you ask a lot of people and they immediately try to define dispensation as time. but if you do a word study, you realize time's not part of it so this was but he brought out some some important characteristics that apply to each dispensation it, it there's specific revelation from God. this is how you know that there's a change. God reveals new information. there is a responsibility given that man is tested on in regard to obedience. So he says some very good things there. Now, here's another man, W. Graham Scroggie. Scroggie was at one time a uh, pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is a very ancient Baptist congregation in London, going back to the middle of the 17th century, the mid-1600s. Uh, had some very famous pastors, including John Gill and uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Scroggie was pastor of several other churches and became the pastor of, of Metropolitan Tabernacle during the time of the Civil War, from like 1938 to 1944. During that time in 1941, the Metropolitan Tabernacle was bombed by, the, by in the in the London Blitz. And so this was a difficult time for the for that particular church, In fact, by the late 60s, it was down to just about 20 people. Now they've had the same pastor since 1970, Peter Masters, and they're huge. They're an enormous church again. But they've gone through their ups and downs, and uh, Scroge was a a dispensationalist. He was was Keswick in his view of the spiritual life. We studied some of that before, which is, although he was firmly anti-charismatic, not Pentecostal, wrote several things against the Pentecostal view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was a strong dispensationalist, and he wrote, in, and wrote a number of books. He wrote over 30 books during his uh, uh, active ministry. He, at times, he was itinerant in the U.S. for about eight years in the early 30s. He also traveled extensively in Australia and, and New Zealand. He wrote that the word oikonomia bears one significance and means an administration, whether of a house or property, of a state or nation, or as in the present study, the administration of the human race or any part of it at any given time, just as a parent would govern his household in different ways according to varying necessity, yet ever for one good end. So God has at different times dealt with men in different ways according to the necessity of the case, but throughout for one great grand end. Now, he's not saying, and no dispensationalist is saying that we believe in two different ways of salvation, but we're often accused of that. Every dispensationalist believes that human beings are always saved by grace through faith. It is that the object of the promise differs in specificity as a result of the progress of revelation. In the Old Testament, they anticipated the fulfillment of, uh, uh, of the salvation promise in the New Testament, they look back to the fulfillment of the salvation pro- pro- process, uh, promise. But this is Graham Scroggie. Now, Charles Ryrie is well known in a more modern context, a group of scholars who were all uh, protégés and disciples of Louis Ferry Chafer, Uh, Were well-known, wrote quite a bit on dispensationalism and prophecy, men like Dwight Pentecost, who's now 95 years old, still teaches one course a semester at Dallas Seminary, even though he has throat cancer. Um, Then you had John Walvard, who was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary from the death of Lewis Berry Chafer in 1952 until he went to be with the Lord about somewhere around 10 years or so ago. Then there's Charles Ryrie, who was in the late 60s and 70s, late 70s when I was at Dallas. He was the head of the theology department, and he wrote a book called Dispensationalism Today that came out in the early 60s that became a standard textbook on dispensationalism. He revised it in the early 90s, and a lot of the things that that I've got in my notes are, are from his book and some others. Uh, I had Dr. Ryrie for a couple of courses. He was a, he was uh, tough. Uh, I had him for senior theology. We had to read a section every day for class, read two or three chapters, and you had to be prepared to answer whatever questions he asked you on that reading. And you had assigned seats in class. And he would start every day. He would mark down where he ended the day before, and he would just go down the row, and he would ask questions. He might ask you one question, and you had, I think, six buys during the semester where you could just say, nah, I'm not going to answer that. Okay, you're, you're off the hook today. And then he would go to the next person. But he would he would go through, and he would ask you a question. And he might decide to ask you five or six questions of explanation. You never knew where it was going to go, and you were graded on how well you handled yourself and how well you you covered the answers, and that was how uh, you went through senior theology. He was great. So anyway, he is considered one of the great uh, thinkers and writers on dispensationalism. Nobody talks, writes, or discusses anything about dispensationalism without at least mentioning Ryrie's Threefold uh, sine qua non, which we reviewed at the beginning of this class. So he said that a dispensation, he was also, he loved to write uh, uh, definitions, and he was very concise. A uh, dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purposes. And then, because we know and love him so much, I thought I would bring Pastor Theme's dispensation definition in. He said, it's a period of human history expressed in terms of divine revelation. What's wrong with that definition? Time. Right, just like Schofield. Chafer, incidentally, and I didn't have time today to go back and pull his quote. Chafer, in his uh, pamphlet on dispensationalism, defined it as as an administration. So he uh, theme says it's a period of human history expressed in terms of divine revelation. History is a sequence of divine administration. See, it's brought in as a secondary idea in the next sentence, uh, divided into eras, each having unique characteristics as well as certain functions in common with the other ages. Uh, these consecutive eras reflect the unfolding of God's plan for mankind. They constitute the divine viewpoint of history and the theological interpretation of history, which is an excellent statement. Then I was asked to write the article in the Tim LaHaye Study Bible on dispensationalism, and I went, as is my want, I read all the greats, and I condensed mostly what others had, had already said and emphasized to one degree or another. And I stated that a dispensation, therefore, is a distinct and identifiable Administration, that means it has certain characteristics, so you can distinguish one from another. They have distinct identifiable characteristics, a distinct identifiable administration, the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. A closely connected but not interchangeable word is is age, which introduces the time element. God manages the entirety of human history as a household, moving humanity through sequential stages of administration determined by the level of revelation he has provided up to that time in history. That brings in the important notion of the progress of revelation. Each administrative period is characterized by revelation that specifies His responsibilities, a test in relation to those responsibilities, a um, a failure to pass the test, And God's gracious provision of a solution when failure occurs. Where did I get that? Who did I get that from? I got that from Schofield. So I'm bringing together major ideas from all of my mentors, Chafer, Walvard, Ryrie, Theme, uh, Schofield, into condensing them into uh, one paragraph. Now, how do we know when a new dispensation begins? There needs to be characteristics. We need to be able to say something. So let's let's stop here for a minute, see so if anybody has any questions on definitions, on any of the concepts I've gone through so far. Jeff is... I emailed it to you. It should be on the site.
1: Good. Yeah, sure is. All right, it's working. You're the first one. That's
0: the test case. Work. I ask it worked. work. Yeah, okay. What is the dispensational view of the Edenic Adamic and Noah covenants? Specifically, do these covenants extend to the church age partially or in Yeah, the Yeah, they do. They're eternal covenants. We'll get into that in detail as we go through the we'll go through each dispensation and their characteristics. But uh yeah, I th- I take it that the creation covenant gets modified twice because there there are similarities between what God says in Genesis 1 and 2 what he says gets modified in Genesis 3 because of sin and then it gets modified again when they come off the off the ark. I don't I haven't heard anybody comment on how they come off the ark in the new Noah movie. Somebody commented that the fallen angels, the Nephilim, helped him build the ark, which I thought was just really bizarre. But um, anyhow, no, th- that continues because the sign of the Noahic covenant is, is the uh, what? The rainbow. And that's in effect until the curse gets rolled back. So, Alan, you've got a question. I don't see why calling it a period of uh, of history necessarily puts a time frame on it. I mean there are different periods of history. Well, that a period you know, of history, a period of history is a time word. And this is where you get into basic lexicography. Oikonomia, which is the word translated dispensation, doesn't have a time connotation. I mean you can you know go through all the English dictionaries, you go through all the Greek dictionaries, it doesn't have a time connotation. So technically if you're going to define a word you don't import as your major idea something that is not inherent that cannot be derived from the from the usage of the word Obviously an administration occurs within a time frame but it's not the primary idea in the word this is, this is what we do with word studies all the time. Is what does the word mean? What are primary characteristics? What are secondary characteristics? That sort of thing. And this is what you get hung up on from, the, from critiques from non-dispensationalists are constantly saying dispensationalists who define a dispensation as a time have not, you know, you can't support that from the usage of the word. And they're right. You can't support it from the usage of the word. Age, ionas, kronos, kairos, these are other terms that are brought in that bring that idea to it. So uh, it's it's the, the, when you construct a definition, what is a dispensation? If you start off saying it is a time, you're indicating that's your primary characteristic of the meaning of the word. The first thing that needs to be said, it's an administration. Okay. Now, anything else? All right. When does a new dispensation begin? How are we going to define that? How are we going to know, oh, we've gone through a change? Because you will hear some people who have said that uh, age of, the age of Israel is a dispensation, and that goes from Abraham to uh, Christ, to the cross. Or they'll say that some people have taken the dispensation of the patriarchs out, and they won't start the age of Israel until the giving of the Mosaic Law. How do you define this? And it comes down to, as I've worked my way through this, is God defines the administration. God defines the test, the the, um, information on the... um, as to when things change. This is the way things are going to be. This is what I expect of man. And then when he changes that. So there's always new revelation that occurs. And this new revelation redefines the nature of the administration. So the first thing we have to look at is that there's new revelation given informing the human race that a change is taking place. Second thing that... Needs to be brought out is when you go from one dispensation to another, some things continue the same and some things are different. Not everything changes. Some things continue the same, some things change. For example, what I will emphasize is the way we know when dispensations change through the Old Testament, for the most part, is a new covenant is given. When a new covenant is given, there are new responsibilities. There's obviously new revelation. There's new responsibility, new accountability uh, for a group of people. Now, some things will continue to be the same. For example, during the period of the, um, during the age of the Gentiles, both in the age of what we call the age of conscience, which isn't my favorite term for that age, that dispensation or the dispensation of human government, you had... Patriarchal sacrifices. A blood sacrifice uh, for, with preferably a sheep or a goat that was without spot or blemish. They clearly knew what the difference was between clean and unclean animals when God instructed Noah to put seven of every clean animal and uh, two of every unclean animal on the ark. He didn't define clean or unclean for Noah, so obviously it had already been revealed. It's just not the disclosure of that, excuse me, the disclosure of that information just isn't given in the um, uh, anywhere in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but it's assumed no one knew what he was talking about. So obviously some things were continued, and then they get modified. It continues. Animal sacrifice is clearly present under the age of the, the dispensation of the patriarchs, but it's modified and... Developed in many ways under the Mosaic law, under the uh, uh, dispensation of the law. Third thing is that from God's perspective, a dispensation is an administration or management of history. So when God looks at this from the divine viewpoint, it is a, an administration of history. When man looks at it, God looks at it that way because he's the ultimate overseer. When man looks at it, we look at it from the perspective of what's our responsibility. What does God expect of us? If we are a believer living in the church age, uh, God expects one thing. If we're a believer living under the law, God expects something else. So these would be just four things that indicate something about a dispensational shift from one thing to another. Now, there are three major characteristics of a dispensation and then four minor characteristics of a dispensation. The three major characteristics of a dispensation are, first of all, that there's a change in God's administration or God's, or excuse me, there's a change in God's in revelation. There's new revelation that's given. Second, he changes the way he administers history. How did God administer history during the Garden of Eden? He's personally present. He's showing up every day. He's giving instruction and guidance personally, individually to Adam and Eve. What does he do after the end of the uh, Age of Innocence? Well, his presence still seems to be on the earth, but not in the same way. And there's an indication of this because many of you've read in the King James version that that uh, God God grows uh, weary of mankind and says that my my spirit which there's not talking about the Holy Spirit um my spirit will not strive with man anymore But that word for strive is hapax logomena, and it's been discovered in the 20th century when you look at Akkadian and Ugaritic and other cognate languages, that all of the cognates that for that word that's translated strive are words for remaining or abiding. That doesn't mean strive. It means to abide. And that would make sense that God continues in that period between the end of the Age of Innocence and the flood. He's still walking with Enoch. You know, Enoch walked with God and he was not. There's more of a personal presence of God on the earth at that time. That's why he hasn't delegated human government yet, because God is still more intimately involved. But after the flood, God's out of here. He's not directly involved in the same way that he was prior to the flood. So he changes the way he administers history, and he changes uh, man's responsibility, as indicated in the covenants. And then the minor characteristics of a dispensation. There's a test. There's a failure. Minor features are not always present in every dispensational shift, uh, and then there's a primary steward in the church it's the ch- in the church age it's the church it's the body of christ is the steward in it, in the uh, age of israel or in the dispensation of the law it was Israel now let 's look at some things that dispensationalism is not sometimes this is uh, uh we're also accused of several things. Uh, Dispensationalism is not a recognition that dispensations exist. Every Christian who's not going to the temple, as Lewis Berry Chafer said, if you're not going to the temple to sacrifice a lamb every time you sin, then you're a dispensationalist. Every person who recognizes that things were different before the fall than they were after the fall, and everyone who thinks that were, things were different before the Mosaic Law than they were after the Mosaic Law, and everyone who thinks that things were different after the cross than they were before the cross, is in some sense a dispensationalist. And you can look at a number of Reformed covenant theologians, and they will have a dispensational scheme. That's why I keep coming back to the fact that having a timeline with a breakdown of dispensations, as we'll see, uh, Charles Hodge, very famous head of the systematic theology department of Princeton in the mid-19th century, had a dispensational scheme. There were others before him that marked out the, the plan of history according to dispensations, but they weren't dispensationalists have to come back to this fundamental idea of God working and the administration and responsibilities and how those change. So it's not simply a recognition that dispensations exist. It's not related to a specific number of dispensations. In fact, if you look at the Dallas Theological Seminary doctrinal statement, which was written by Louis Sperry Chafer, there are only three dispensations that are identified in that doctrinal statement. The dispensation before the church, the dispensation of grace, and the dispensation of the fullness of times, coming out of those passages we just looked at in Ephesians. Those are the, that's the minimum, I would say, that a person has to hold to to be a uh, dispensationalist. And then third, it's not equal to premillennialism. When we talk about millennialism and premillennialism, I'll introduce the concept of historic premillennialism, which is a non-dispensational version of premillennialism. So, dispensationalism is different. There are many pre-mills who are not dispensationalists. So, again, dispensationalism is a consistent literal interpretation of scripture, a distinction between Israel and the church, and an understanding the unifying principle of history is the glory of God. Now, there are some misconceptions that I want to cover you'll you may hear these kinds of charges brought against dispensationalists every now and then uh, frequently dispensationalists are accused of teaching two different ways of salvation that there's one way in the Old Testament based on the law and a different way of salvation in the New Testament is that true wait 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 a minute is that true Wait a minute, wait a minute, let's go look and see what C.I. Schofield said. Got to be careful, I'm tricky. Schofield, in his note on John 1.17, where uh talks about uh, uh, Moses brought the law, but Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace, he summarizes it. Grace is the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Nothing wrong with that. Then, Schofield goes on to say, it "...is therefore constantly set, that is, grace, is therefore constantly set in contrast to law, under which God demands righteousness from man as under grace. He gives righteousness to man." Citing Romans 3, 22, 8, 4, and Philippians 3, 9. Then he says, "...law is connected to, with Moses in works, grace with Christ in faith. Law blesses the good." Grace saves the bad. Law demands that blessings be earned. Grace is a free gift. That's not quite true. That's partially true. But it's not written well. It's very confusing. What? He, hasn't been through Roman series. he hadn't been through the Roman series. That's, that's right. There's grace in the Old Testament. But it gets worse. His second point, as a dispensation, grace begins with the death and resurrection of Christ. The point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation. Hello? Schofield clearly taught, not only in this note, but in other places as well, that in the Old Testament, the obedience to the law was the condition of salvation. So is he teaching two different ways of salvation? Yes, he was. Did he at other times speak out of the other side of his mouth? Yes, he did. Yeah, he is a little lordship, too. So there were some problems with this, and this is where what will happen is you'll get critics of dispensationalism, and they'll go find these little statements made by Line or made by Schofield or made by somebody else, and they will take that as if every dispensationalist that's ever walked the streets of the earth believes that. Okay. So just, just that's just one misconception about dispensationalism. Another is you'll hear this um, from covenant theologians frequently, and not I don't know if you hear this quite as much. I'm not on top of all the current literature as I was at one time. There used to be a guy whose name I can't remember who would go through the Dallas Seminary Library, and he would put he would have a little mimeographed page or two. With with these critiques of dispensationalism, and he would just stick those in random books throughout the throughout the library, and accuse uh, uh, Darby of coming up with the rapture idea from some ecstatic utterance from Margaret Macdonald at a uh, church meeting in the 1830s, and that that's where uh, uh, Darby got the idea. And this is a typical response of, of covenant theologians is that dispensationalism is new in history and therefore it is not biblical. And there, that is a false argument, a logical fallacy. But we've demonstrated through the work of many people in the, the pre-trib rapture study group over the last 25 years that there are numerous individuals from the uh, 5th century, 4th century pseudo Ephraim document that was discovered in the early 90s up through a lot of current material that's been presented by Bill Watson from Colorado Christian University who is a historian who specializes in 17th and 18th century British theology that numerous Puritans believed the church would not go through the tribulation. Now, some of them don't have a seven-year tribulation, some of them have a three-year tribulation, but they it's not a mid-trip position if it's a three-and-a-half-year tribulation. They just have a short tribulation. But they do not have the church going through the tribulation at all, and more and more discoveries of that type are being made. So it's important to understand that that even though Darby is the systematizer, many of the ideas that are inherent to dispensational theology, uh, were present from the early church, a view of uh, a premillennial return of Christ, a view that uh, there was something of a distinction between Israel and the church, a view of literal hermeneutics, even though they practiced it somewhat inconsistently. A third objection, it comes from charismatics who who claim that dispensationalists, they try to say that only dispensationalists are anti-charismatic, but most of the foundational works that were done in the early 20th century against the charismatic theology, Pentecostal theology, came from the reformed camp, not from dispensationalists. And charismatics try to claim that dispensationalists are anti-supernaturalists. You don't just, you just don't believe God can ever work a miracle today you don't believe that god can heal anybody today that's because you're a dispensationalist and this just shows a that they're basically ignorant and secondly that um, they don't understand church history others teach that dispensationalists are antinomianism because we believe that christians aren't under the law the mosaic law but that doesn't mean that we don't believe that god has established absolutes for the for the uh, church age so in conclusion just to wrap up this this first part before we get into the looking a little more in depth at the details we've learned that god has a plan which includes different time periods with different characteristics that uh, The apostles understood that there was a distinction between their time and the future time of the kingdom by asking the question, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? They also understood that there was a difference between their time and the time before the cross when Israel was under the law. They clearly understood that uh, as a result of what Jesus said and taught, That there was something new that was transpiring and there there were new responsibilities, but that was pretty much left for the Apostle Paul, who is the primary apostle who is given uh, the mystery doctrine related to the church age. And uh, we see dispensationalism, the inherent emphasis is on human responsibility, so it's very much a corollary to the first divine institution of individual human responsibility, that dispensationalism emphasizes the responsibility of an administrator during each of these uh, various eras. Okay, next time we'll come back and start getting a little more into some of the other issues as we go forward. We will look at each dispensation in time and what these uh, uh, responsibilities are. Anybody else have any questions or want any clarification, Jeff? Uh, Robbie, when you uh, when you when you had your list of things of uh, you know what institutes a new dispensation, right? Isn't there some isn't there a relationship between man's failure, you know, he he doesn't obey this covenant and God says, Okay, I'm passing judgment and I'm giving you a new covenant. So isn't man's volition so now, yeah, that's part of the character. I've got that under, under the um, minor characteristics. Not not as a uh, identification of when a new dispensation begins because it doesn't begin with because of a, a failure. There are many failures. Evil. You th- think of the t- dispensation of of uh, co- human conscience. There's numerous failures, and God gives grace again and again and again. So that's human failure is not a sign that a dispensation is ending. Okay. All right. No questions, Bryce? <clears throat> two from streamers. Two questions from streamers. Okay, good. They're, they're sort of interrelated. One from uh, Paul Yost in uh, Pittsburgh, and the other from Jeffrey Taylor in Levelland, Texas. Uh, the first one, Paul, says, I guess the idea of time is rough for me to wrap around. I mean, hasn't one dispensation followed another, as in dispensation of Israel followed by the church? Yeah. The second question is, please legitimize your use of the statement in your definition, administrative period. Is this making a distinction of time? I'm not saying time is irrelevant to a dispensation. We have to understand te- technical language here. Dispensation, the word you look at it, it talks about a steward, talks about management, talks about responsibility. Those are not, t- time is not part of the meaning of those words. That doesn't mean that if I hire a management consultant that there's not a time frame on the period of his employment. But that's not the primary idea in the term manager, in the term administrator. When you talk about an administration, obviously administration occurs within a time period. But the word administration does not have as part of its primary or secondary meanings the idea of time. But clearly it functions within a time. That's what's brought in by the other words, uh, you know, t- time, seasons, ages, So a dispensation occurs within a time frame, but the emphasis is on administration. Now, if you're not used to working with technical definitions, then it may look like I'm trying to slice the baloney a little thin, but that's what you do when you're working through technical definitions is what's the primary meaning of the word. One of the other objections that comes up out from from non-dispensations, they'll say, well, you're using the word dispensational in a way in which it's not used in the Scripture. There's at least two ways that, that the, the, script, the word oikonomos is used in the Scripture that are exactly like we're talking about. We talked about one earlier, the dispensation of the fullness of times. So That's clearly how we're using the term. But we also have words like atonement. Atonement's, the word atonement's never used in the New Testament. It's used in the Old Testament, and it, actually, the English word atonement is invented by English theologians to explain the concept of, from the Old Testament. But when we develop it into a theological term, it's consistent with its Old Testament usage. It's not the same. So these are just important aspects of defining, defining terms. A dispensation is an administration characterized by certain things that operates within a period of time. But the primary idea is not time, it's administration. But it doesn't happen within a vacuum. You talk about Nixon's administration. What are we talking about? The characteristics of his administration. The first thing that comes to your mind is not 1968 to 1974. That's a time factor. When we talk about Nixon's administration, you're talking about the people involved... Uh, the, the characteristics of that administration, things that were accomplished, the Watergate scandal, things like that. you are not thinking in terms of the t- temporal boundaries. That's a secondary idea. But obviously Nixon's administration occurred within a within a time frame. hope that helps a little bit. Isn't it also, it help to understand, is that we're viewing a lot of this in the past? Sure. So we're, you know, that it brackets it in time, a Yeah, it does. Time is not irrelevant to the concept. It's just not the main idea that's being emphasized. Okay, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time we've had together. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for interaction. Helping to clarify these ideas so that we make sure we understand how we're using the terms and what we're talking about as we seek to explain your word. Father, we pray that we might continue to uh, desire to be more... uh, technical in our thinking, more precise as we come to understand what you have revealed, that we may may accurately apply it in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.